Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I read a story the other day, and I, I forget where I read it, one of our, one of our websites. In Vancouver, there was a confrontation between two guys. I think it was at a Starbucks. The police are investigating the possibility of a hate crime. That's what they're saying. That's what the news account was. It appears that one of the men was speaking in Turkish. That's what he later said. And another man at the Starbucks is reported to have said, and I went to the story and I looked it up here, um, he shouted at the, uh, at the man, you're speaking in an effing foreign language. And uh, then there was more, some more, I can't call it dialogue. The man who was punched says that two men challenged him with, you effing piece of S, is your effing call finished? And you're talking in a effing foreign language. Go back to your own country. And he punched the guy in the face. So I like to ask questions that are, that are out of people's comfort zone, including my own. And I just came back from nine, after nine years in Quebec where I know that if you don't speak French... It can be an issue. No, I don't think people are going to slug you in the mouth. But you can get some pretty negative responses verbally or just be ignored. But here's the question I want to ask you. Does it bother you to hear people in Canada not speaking English? Well, take Quebec out of the equation, right? We're just talking about the English-speaking part of the country right now. Does it bother you? To hear people in Canada not speaking English. Do you ever feel like telling them to learn to speak English? I'm going to ask you the question that I know is not comfortable, but I'm asking it. Because I've seen some looks shot at people. I've heard some muttering when I've walked behind people. Does it bother you to hear people in Canada not speaking English? Do you feel like newcomers aren't making the effort to learn and speak and work in English? By the way, the British government, the current British government, passed legislation that any immigrant who refuses to learn English will have their government benefits cut. If you go to the UK, you're expected to speak English. That's British law. But I'm just asking for your gut feeling, and we're all going to get together or get along or we're not. And language is the most fundamental art aspect of communication, right? We talk to each other. So this guy gets punched in the face for speaking Turkish. He gets the F-bomb fired at him for speaking Turkish in a Starbucks in Vancouver. 
Does it bother you to hear people in Canada not speaking English? We'll leave Quebec out of this. Do you ever feel like telling them to learn how, how to speak English? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tony in Edmonton. Hey, Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi, Roy. Yes, sir. Go ahead, please. Okay, I'll make it real quick. On myself, there's no problem whatsoever. I just want to relay a quick story about my parents. Yeah. Um, coming from Hamilton, they're immigrants from the Balkans. But when they were in groups amongst themselves and they noticed that there was uh, English people with them, they would stop and, and then apologize and say, I'm sorry, we'll go back to English. That's what they used to do. So, so if they were in a group, they would speak their native language to one another, and then if they recognized, what, that there are other people around, they would switch to English? Exactly. And they'd apologize and say, look, we're sorry, and they'd go right to English immediately. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Uh, fine. Like myself, I don't care. This is a great country. I love this country. And if people are speaking their own dialect, by all means. Sometimes they, 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 they come to me and say, uh, do, do, do we, should we switch? I say, no, by all means, keep talking. All right, nope. Tony, appreciates the call. Green Show Chorus Radio Network from Edmonton to Toronto. And Bruce, Bruce, thank you for the call, sir. Go ahead, please. Hi, how are you? Good, sir. How are you? I, this is the first time I'm calling in, but like, when I heard this topic, I had to call in. Because like, I rely on public transit, right? right? And like, I, like, all the time on the bus, I hear these people like, speaking on their cell phones. And out of like, um, the language, I understand, right? And uh, to me, it's very offensive. And I say, sometimes I do say to them, like, honestly, I said, like, I don't understand. I turn it down, like, stop talking. And they say, I'm, Can- I'm Canadian. I'm from Canada. And I'm like, I'm Canadian. I'm Aboriginal, right? So, like, either quit talking, and it sounds like an opportune radio to me, right? It's very offensive to me that well, I have to listen to their phone calls, and it's like, I'm not going to be racist, but like, TikTok, blah, 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 right? But you want, the, you, want the people, you want the people in public transit to speak English because it's... Or the official quiet. language of most of Canada. Or just be quiet. In, in, you know, in, in practical terms. Or be quiet. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. It's an emotional issue. It is an emotional issue, and it deserves some discussion. Bruce is in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Only the sec- It's the second biggest disappointment on your honeymoon, Bruce. Hello? Did you? I just blew my line, buddy. I said you're in Niagara Falls. It's the second biggest disappointment on your honeymoon. Never mind. Uh, go ahead, Bruce. Bruce. Hello? Yes, sir. Go ahead, please. Can you hear me? I can hear you, sir. Oh, good. Um, I don't have any problem with it at all. Um, and it's kind of humorous, the fellow who just on Tony, I think, from Toronto. He couldn't understand the language of the person speaking on the cell phone, so he's upset. He just wanted to listen in on the on the phone call. You think? <laughs> yeah, I think that was kind of cute. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, we have to be more broad-minded about this whole thing. Do we? Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so, so, what do you say to, well, so what do you say to Quebecers who have English as an official second, uh, secondary language and your civil rights in Quebec as an Anglophone are violated by law every single day of the year? Well, aren't they really just trying to legislate a culture? Aren't they trying that's to what they're doing. Absolutely, that's what yeah. they're doing. And, and that diminishes over time. It diminishes, diminishes. Um, Quebecers are no longer the majority in Quebec. The French-speaking. It's, they're like uh, second or third place. Who, who is? Uh, the French-Canadian. Oh, no, no, no. They're the majority. No, no, Bruce, they're the majority. Are they still the majority? 
Oh yeah, I was just there for nine. I was just there for nine years. Trust me. Thank you for the call, sir. I appreciate it. In beautiful Dundas, Ontario, here's Toby. Hi, Roy. How you doing? Good, and I can probably see you from here. Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I knew this was your home turf. Um, you know, I think there's something going on here that is just basic courtesy, politeness, and civility is what's missing. And what, you know, if people are calling hate crime. At the drop of you know somebody speaking. Told me, I'm so sorry. I have ten seconds. Go ahead. Well, everybody who moves here and doesn't have English needs to learn English. Absolutely, but in a restaurant, if someone is being offensively loud into a cell phone, the restaurant should say, "Excuse me, we don't have really loud conversations on the phone in here. Could you tone that down?" Okay. To me, it's not even about the other language; it's about the rudeness, and possibly that's cultural. Okay. To come from someone else, somewhere else, and yelling into the phone is okay in public. We don't like it here. Uh, gotta go. So, Control that in your restaurant. Thank you for the call, Toby. I really appreciate it. It's a very contentious issue, isn't it? We'll talk about it in more detail another day. Scott New York, when we come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Global News reports that a, quote, notorious repeat convicted rapist has been released back onto the streets of Calgary. The release is terrifying one of his victims. No surprise, because James Alexander Pratt, who's been let out of prison on statutory release according to the Parole Board of Canada. Is it Pratt or Perrant? Scott will tell me in a second. He's been in and out of prison, I think it's Perrant, has been in and out of prison uh, for decades. In 1987, Perrant broke into a house, tied up the woman owner, and repeatedly raped her over a period of hours. So that woman is now terrified at the news of Perron's release. How did Mr. Perron earn his release? Well, Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety, is going to explain that to us. Scott, how did uh, how does this how did this gentleman obtain his release? Well, first of all, it is James Alexander Perron, and I probably wouldn't describe him as a gentleman. Wrong. Um, it, it frankly angers me that we are still talking about cases like this. The Calgary police, uh, who clearly are doing their job, uh, issued a statement on uh, Friday giving a public notice that this guy had, that was about to be released into the, uh, the community. Uh, and their ability to do that, Roy, is actually governed by uh, provincial statute, which essentially you know, says that if they have grounds to believe that somebody is being released and they pose a high risk to public safety, that they can make that kind of a public statement. But you have to wonder when you look at this, what the hell is going on if you know, the police are of the view that this is a guy who's a high risk, and yet we find out when we do drill down a little bit that, in fact, he's been released early from a jail sentence. And as I started going into uh, some of the, uh, the media reporting on this, the first thing that caught my attention, uh, it's, uh, as you noted, it's reported that he has been released on statutory release, which is the form of early release from a jail sentence that in Canadian law you presumptively are entitled to uh, after the expiration of two-thirds of your sentence. We'll get back to that in a second. But when I saw this line in the story that said uh, the board, meaning the parole board, said his release is mandated by law given he has served two-thirds of his sentence, I want to be really, really clear about this, because if that is accurate, that that's what the board said, that is a flat-out lie. We've changed the laws in this country so that people, it is true that there is a presumptive early release at 
two-thirds of the sentence. That's in Section 127 of the Corrections and uh, Conditional Release Act. But the law now also says there's an exception to that and that the individual can be held for their full sentence if the parole board concludes that they pose a high risk of reoffending in a sexual or violent nature. That's in Section 129, subsection 2. Okay, those were all changes that came to the law, by the way, after innocent Canadians had been victimized and the you know, the notion was, oh, well, gee whiz, there's nothing we can do about it. And so the laws ultimately got changed to create that exception. But guess what, folks? This is Canada. So there's an exception to the exception. And you know what? In our country, the parole board, although they, like quite logically, have the power to deny this uh, form of early release of two-thirds, they can only do it if Correctional Service of Canada, in effect, is called a referral. They refer the case for the board to make that decision. If Correctional Service of Canada doesn't refer the case, then they have to release them. Okay. How Wait, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Scott. Correctional Service Canada, those are the people who said to me on the air that we're all, what was it? Not Unconvicted? Non-convicted? Non, non-convicted offenders in the community, I think. Yeah, not unconvicted, non-convicted individuals living in the community. Yeah. it's Roy, It is. this is a disgrace, and... If it is the case that Correctional Service of Canada did not refer this individual for detention, I mean, the board, in the same story, the board says, in a, here's a quote, it says, in a written decision, the board told Perrant, quote, you pose a high risk to reoffend sexually. Well, excuse me, but that's the criteria for keeping him in custody. And we've also created special tools, as you well know, you and I worked on it together years ago, so that... You know, if somebody is kept for their full sentence, in the old days it used to be that we literally had to wait for another victim before the state could intervene to do anything. And in one case in particular with a bad guy named uh, Joe Fredericks, who abducted and raped and murdered a little uh, boy named Christopher Stevenson, we changed the laws so as to allow for specialized orders that are exactly like parole orders uh, that the police can bring even after a guy has served a sentence, which if they determine that he poses a high risk, which is, of course, the criteria to keep him in custody in the first place. So given what the Calgary Police Service has said about Mr. I said gentleman, right? Uh, you know the, how I meant that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Calgary Police Service has expressed deep concern about the release of Mr. Perron. The parole board says we have no choice, but they do as long as the good people at Correctional Service Canada say... We're going to raise the red flag that's available to us, and we're going to carry that red flag to the parole board, which in effect will then stop you having the right, or at least give you the option to not release the guy. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. And look, the Calgary police are clearly doing their job. One of the developments along the way was that uh, police forces across the country developed what are known as high-risk offender units. Right. So they know who these bad guys are. They know where they're serving their sentences. They know how long it is. They pay attention to that. And as the story reveals, Calgary actually went to the, the Calgary police actually went to the parole board to express their opposition to release. And I have a feeling, if, it, if I'm right, and in fact this, was, this case was never referred, they probably made the submission to Correctional Services of Canada, and they got ignored. So here we've created all these changes to laws and all of the specialized tools for, you know, post-warrant expiry supervision and high-risk offender units. But the, the people who are charged with that responsibility are not using the tools that they were given. 
Somebody should be asking the question why that is, and if perhaps, and I did a little digging around on some statistics, the number of cases where Correctional Services of Canada is actually referring people to the parole board for those decisions looks to me, based on the analysis of the stats that I saw, it's down below 2%. Think about that. Okay? Why aren't you using it? Do you remember, Roy, as well, too, that one of the uh, correctional workers was asked, you know, why they didn't refer somebody for, uh, 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 or, or, or suggest that they shouldn't be granted parole, and it was after the fact that the guy had killed somebody? He goes, well, you know, the culture around here is GTO. Get them out. Yeah, I remember. I also remember you mentioned... New attitude. You, you mentioned Christopher Stevenson, a little 12-year-old boy, who was taken by Joseph Fredericks, who was, who was diagnosed as a homicidal, maniacal pedophile who enjoyed torturing children more than killing them. The system let him out. And the individual, the parole officer, who was responsible for keeping Fredericks under supervision, said during the inquest into Christopher's death, uh, I, uh, I didn't know what a, what a psychopath was. I had no idea. Yeah, they also lost him. Oh, yeah, they did lose him. Exactly. Exactly correct, sir. Yes. That's why we created the sex offender registry. We've actually made, so don't get me wrong, there's other things that we should be doing here, uh, but uh, we've actually made some changes, and it is beyond frustrating, indeed it's angering, to see that the people who are on the public payroll are not using the tools that were given to them. And what worries, I'll tell you, Roy, what worries me as well about this you know, if you've been listening in the last little while, while well, people, you know, in the, in our new federal government are going, oh, gee, you know, the justice system, you know, we have to uh, try to make some changes. And there's too many people in jail. What's been happening is that we have been, in my opinion, we have doing, been doing a better job of targeting the high-risk offenders, the people who commit crimes over and over again. All right. Those are the kinds of people who are ending up in custody and under supervision longer, and that is generally why I think crime has been going down. Scott. I have a very bad feeling that we are heading back to the days of the 90s where we had to go through all of these fights again. Yeah. And a case like this, and the bureaucrats, and you know them, you know them at least as well as I do, yeah. and Correctional Services of Canada say, ooh, gee, you know, this might make me look good if we have fewer people in custody. Exactly. And to hell with public safety. You've reminded us about this for 25, 30 years, and you've been the the voice of, of seasoned and reasonable justice in this country, and you're responsible for so many of the changes, the necessary changes that were made. Scott Newark, thank you. Thanks. It would be nice if they were used. It would be, wouldn't it? Talk I'll, to you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and former Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Public Safety Minister. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Several of my friends... Coincidentally, not knowing, I'm sure they didn't know that they, they were each doing it, have suggested to me in the last week that I should um, start dating and enter into a relationship with a woman. My wife died 15 months ago, as you know, when I talked to you about it. Her battle with cancer, and it's been a hard 15 months. It's still very hard. But my friends want me to move on. And I'm sure they, may, they mean only the very best. And I got thinking about this. I wasn't going to talk about me on the air, but now I am. But the reason I'm doing this is that I'm sure there are so many other people who find themselves in exactly the same situation, exactly the same situation, 
Their spouses have died. It's going to happen to uh, millions of people, millions and millions and millions of people. Their spouses have died. And what they, they ask themselves, what do I do? What do I do? Do I, do I get into a new relationship? Do I stay alone? What do I do? And then part of it is also people wonder, what do other people expect of me? What do my friends want me to do? What does my family think is the right thing to do? Here's my advice to you. Your friends and your family, do what you want to do. Let them deal with it. That's your life. So, I found out about Becky Aikman. She's the author of the best-selling book, Saturday Night Widows, The Adventures of Six Friends Remaking Their Lives. And she appears, she's appeared on, on, with Oprah and Katie Couric, and her book has been reviewed favorably by dozens and dozens of major newspapers. It's the story of six young widows who decide to form a pack of friends who support each other as they rebuild their lives. And Becky Aikman started it. Hi, Becky. Hi, Roy. I'm so sorry to hear about your wife. Thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. But, uh, you know, you know this as well as I do. We change as time goes on. When, when, you're, when your spouse dies, you think that's it. That's, you know, your world is just closed in on you and, and it's done. And then over a period of time, for some people more quickly than others, you do start to recognize life again. And mm-hmm. you make a decision to move forward. And that's a decision that you made. Tell us, please, about your story. Well, my husband died when I was still in my 40s. And uh, at first, it was very hard to think about anything, as I'm sure you know. And then, as I'm sure you're also aware, over time, you do have to think about, how do I make this transition to this next part of my life? I can't just give up. I have to go forward and I have to make something of my life. So um, when I reached that stage, I joined a support group and I was kicked out after one meeting because um, all they wanted to do was make everyone tell stories about how sad they were. And I said to the leader, shouldn't we be thinking about how to make ourselves happy again? And he told me, I don't think you fit in. I don't think you should come back. Oh, my goodness. Instead, I went and spoke to experts because I was a journalist, and I learned from people who actually study people who are grieving that a lot of the conventional wisdom about the best approach to this isn't really that helpful. For example, sitting around talking about how sad you are for years and years is not helpful. Um, And they told me that what's helpful is friendship, laughter, having new adventures, so I decided to start an alternative support group with five other young widows, and we would base ours on that, having new adventures and looking forward. So my condolences on the loss of your, your spouse. That is something that stays with you forever. But your life does does get, regain momentum, and you do recognize that the sun rises, and there's a life to be lived, and there are things to be done. And you and the, these five other young widows formed this this wonderful group, and you talk to us a little bit about what you did and how you helped each other and how you you actually did what that guy in the support group didn't want you to do. Yes, we did what the experts told me we should do, which was to plan adventures together so that we would get out into the world and have new discoveries and new adventures, and that is very helpful in making people realize that, yes, there are other possibilities out there. We had no choice. We were in this position. 
we might as well make the best of it and get out into the world and, and make, a new life, make new lives for ourselves. So we did different adventures every month, always on Saturday nights. That's why our name became Saturday Night Widows. Uh, we traveled together. We took a cooking class. We went to the beach. We ultimately made a trip to Morocco to go to a place where none of us had ever been before. And we found that we stretched our wings, and it made us feel much more confident and happy about finding a new way forward. And you helped one another. You helped one another as a group. If an individual made a decision, like if one of the women um, in the in the group, one of the Saturday Night Widows, uh, became romantically uh, involved, the the other five helped her. That's right. Because you're discovering this, I discovered this. It is the most fraught issue, I think, for most people who've lost spouse. And I get so many letters from people who've read my book, thousands of letters at this point. I have to say, by far, the biggest issue that they wrestle with is this question you're talking about today, which is, should I get out there and try to date, try to find a new partner? How do I go about it? And how do I get over the guilt that I feel about doing this? And what do you say to them? Well, it is a very difficult decision, and it's different for everyone. The end result always comes down to do what feels right for you, because everyone is different. And the experts I spoke to tell me this. Everyone is different. Do what feels good. After that, I think it's good to break it down a little bit. Um, For a long time, I did not want to find someone new because... I didn't have room in my heart yet for someone else. I was still too caught up in the marriage that was now lost. After a while, I started feeling like, you know, I got a great deal of happiness out of being in a relationship with someone, having someone to love, who loves me. I should think about this again. But then I came up against this feeling of guilt about going forward and doing that. And that is a very tough one that so many people deal with. And I would encourage people to try to get past that feeling. If it's guilt that's holding you back, you really should not be feeling that way. Life is short. You're entitled to happiness. The partner that you've lost would want you to be happy. So I think in our group, it, we really help each other to get past that feeling of feeling and guilty that we shouldn't move on. I think our culture has a lot of prejudice against that. Um, I think there's this very romantic vision in our culture that there's one person out there for you and that's it forever and you can never have it again. Um, So that's hard to go up against also. So it was very, very helpful to us to have friends going through the same thing and we could encourage each other and say, if you feel like doing this, go for it, give it a try, See what happens. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is a disturbing, disturbing story. Extremely disturbing. And you have to listen. And you have to do something about it. Because you can. You can. No excuses for any of us. None. We can all do something to help. It'll take a couple of minutes 
We can all do something to help. I want you to go to findazerkids.com. That's A-Z-E-R, findazerkids.com. Sign the petition. Then go to the Government of Canada website. Find Justin Trudeau. Okay. Fax him. You may be able to email his office. There's a fax number there. Fax him your thoughts. Email your thoughts. Call the PMO. Tell them. And here's why. Alison Azure continues her desperate quest to be reunited with her four Canadian children who were abducted by their biological dad, Sarah Nazar, refugee to Canada, became a doctor. He was a concerned ascesis. But the government of Stephen Harper saw a good story. Then they took advantage of it. The government of Justin Trudeau, well, that's another story. Alison Azar joins me, as we've talked before. And Alison, the first time we spoke, the first time we spoke, you had hope that this prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was going to stand with you, was going to find a way to get your Canadian children back. He was going to work on the fact that the RCMP issued a Canada-wide arrest warrant for Saren Azar, that Interpol, because of RCMP's um, uh, instructions, had issued a what it, in effect was a red alert for Saren Azar. Trudeau said, said some things to you he made commitments to you, and you had hope. What do you have today, Allison? And thank you for joining us. When I say Justin Trudeau to you today, how do you react? I'm furious. I, you're right. You're right, Roy. And again, thank you for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure. I had a lot of hope because I met with the Prime Minister of Canada on May 17th, he looked me right in the eyes and he said, Alison Azar, your children's file is on my desk. There it will stay until they come home. You have my word. And I was raised to believe the words of people in authority. Maybe that's foolish. Maybe I was naive. I have had nothing except disappointment and betrayal ever since. If you betray me, I will push you back. If you betray my children, I will never forgive you. And that's what this prime minister has done. What happened for people who are not really familiar with the events? What happened to your children? Well, uh, a year ago, uh, a year ago, against all of my wishes, my children were taken out of the country by their father, who uh, was 
being watched by the RCMP as a potential uh, risk for being an abductor. He took my children, my ex-husband took the children, uh, four children, to Germany for a two-week holiday, Roy. Never brought them home. Instead, he took them into northeastern Iraq, into a war zone. Five months later, he crossed illegally into Iran. By the time this government took their seats after the election, they knew exactly where my children were. To this day, they know exactly where they are. It is negligent in the highest order that they have not taken any action to bring these four little Canadian children back home. These little children, your little Canadian children, who haven't seen their mother for a year, these little Canadian children are ordered to come back to Canada. The RCMP issued a Canada-wide arrest warrant for uh, for Azar, um, Sarah Nazar. The, RC- the Interpol was after him with that red alert. The Iranian government, which is the most um, questionable government on the planet, maybe, one of them, is what you told us on the air, actually contacted Canada, said, we have him, we've arrested him. What do you want us to do? Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. And what did Canada do? Canada did not answer the call. At all? Iran did the right thing. They took an Interpol red notice, international fugitive, into detention, and they called the country who had issued that red notice. And Canada didn't answer the phone. By not doing so, the Iranians really had no choice but to release Sarin. That's what they did. Do I yeah, blame the Iranians? I blame Canada. No, I mean, if they've, if they've, they've arrested the man on a, yeah. on a warrant that was issued by the RCMP. They've asked then the RCMP and the Canadian government, now what do you want us to do? We have him. What do you want? Do you want him back? What, what, what do you want us to do? And the response from Ottawa is a resounding and crushing silence, correct? That's correct. And in fact, Ottawa's political intervention in a policing matter is actually illegal. Um, If you are a signatory to Interpol, you have duties. Um, You have to honor uh, the protocol of that by senior government officials in Minister Dion's department instructing RCMP to not answer the phone. That's political interference, and it's actually illegal, Roy. What happened here is an illegal breach of Canada's obligations to Interpol, never mind their obligations to me as a mom or to the thousands of Canadians who are telling the government, we need you to do something here. There's four little kids, and they can't rescue themselves. This is negligent behavior. This is not shiny. This is not sunny. This is not Canada's back. This is leadership 
that is devoid of leadership. Now, when you last spoke to me, and you told us what had happened, Canada had not responded that global affairs used to be foreign affairs, but that's politically incorrect. You can't use the word foreign. It might be deemed offensive to someone. Not taking care of the commitment and promise and the legal requirement to get your children back, that's perfectly okay. But you can't use the word foreign because somebody might be offended. So there's the priorities. When you talk to me, I'm so absolutely disgusted by this. I'm ashamed that the government of this country and the leader of that government would face you. I wouldn't care if it was conservative, NDP, or liberal. In this case, it's liberal. This man, you told us, father himself, stood in front of you, put his arms around you, and committed to get your children back. And he's had opportunities, and he's done nothing, right? Not only has he done nothing, he's actually responsible for his government's obstruction. They are actively now blocking my children's rightful return to Canada. How are they doing that? By not responding? By not responding. They are asleep at the switch. They are not in any way keeping abreast of the situation. They have intimated, they know that my ex-husband, based on his profile, could actually at any point be arrested, possibly tortured, possibly worse. And they have said that in the interest of keeping Sarin Azar alive, they are willing not to ask Iran to return four little kids. You know, that just doesn't even make sense. If I hadn't heard it directly from them, I would have a hard time understanding how they are making the calculus to support somebody who came to Canada as a liar, stayed in Canada as a liar, and left as a liar. My four little kids are so innocent, Roy, and they're desperate. My daughter, my oldest daughter, turned 12. I'm looking there are girls who get married at the age of 12 in that country. Yeah. I'm looking at photographs of your kids right now on findasakidsnow.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I am so proud. I am so proud of our listeners. I am so proud of you because you're on it. You're on it on Twitter. You're on it right now. You're on the Prime Minister. You're you're on it. Alberta Girl at Alberta Girl tweets, uh, are fawning media doing stories about him? Trudeau, photobombing weddings, caving and hiking. Hashtag, pick up the phone. Private Citizen at Private Citizen. Her 12-year-old daughter could be married legally in Iran. The guy folks voted for is on holidays. Yeah, I guess we all have priorities. We all have priorities. Let's go back to Allison. Allison Azar, 
findazzerkidsnow.com. So after you spoke with me last time, federal government of Canada complained. Allison, they complained. You weren't supposed to talk to media, right? Yes. You weren't supposed to do that. So what I want you to do now is speak to the prime minister. You know you have listeners across this country right now listening to you. Their hearts go out to you. They care about you. We all care about you. We care about your kids. Speak to the man who made the promise to you. Go ahead. I'm no, I know people will send it. People will, will it, it'll, it'll get to them, and it will be, it will be carried on. It'll be posted and, and uh, on, on and on and on. Please go ahead and talk to the prime minister. Tell him what you need, to, what you need him to hear. Prime Minister, when I met you two and a half months ago, you made me a promise. Not only have you not lived up to that promise, I'm now of the opinion that you weren't telling me the truth. If you are willing to sacrifice my children in the interest of political calculus, I need you to be honest. I need you to have the fortitude to look me in the eye and tell me that you're sorry, but that you're not ready for the kind of leadership required to bring four innocent kids home. At least you telling me the truth, even if it's something that I don't want to hear and Canadians don't want to hear, that would be the honorable thing to do. I will find a way to get my children home. It may be in spite of you. I am not afraid of you. I am not afraid of your officials. You owe me the truth, and you owe Canada the truth. You're here. You have a lot of friends. You have a lot of support. I'd argue you have something of an army of support <laughs> listening right now. And they're pretty savvy. And they're quick. And they will carry on this message. They'll carry it on on Twitter, on Facebook, on web pages. Folks do that. Carry the message forward. You can do it. You have the time. FindAzzerKidsNow.com. You know what to do with it. A-Z-E-R. You know what to do. I don't need to tell you. You're already doing it. So, Allison, we will, we will stand by you, and we will stay in touch, and we'll talk again, and very soon. Roy, I just want to say to you, you came to me as a friend. You have stayed a friend to me and my children. Your listeners are my friends. We are. I am so indebted to you. We're just, we're one, we're, we're just, we're standing with you. We're standing shoulder to shoulder. We'll stay with you, Allison. I'll talk to you Bless very you. soon. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to all your listeners across the country. Bye. Thank you, Bless Allison. You. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
Pokemon Go's latest update has caused uproar with gamers less than a month since the game's release. It's early days, and the game hasn't been without its faults, plagued with slow servers and bugs. Speaking at Comic-Con, Niantic CEO John Hankey apologized for some of the problems, saying they simply weren't prepared for the levels of popularity the game has enjoyed. The community has been fairly forgiving, perhaps caught up in a haze of nostalgia and wonder at the game's more positive points, but things have changed. As Sunday's update was released and Pokemon trackers began to disappear, social sentiment toward Pokemon Go hit an all-time low since its original release. The social sentiment score reflects the balance of mentions that are categorized by Brandwatch as most likely positive or negative across social media. Brandwatch.com um, send me all their their social media stuff, and it's fascinating. There's a huge drop-off of Pokemon there for a couple of days. And I'm just going to read this, and I'll introduce you to my guest. No, I'm not going to read it because I don't know what it means. There's so many pie charts and broken up into percentages of this, that, and the other. And no, oh, I can't read it. It doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm going to go for uh, the sensible alternative, and I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Mary Swingle, and um, uh, she's a neurotherapist, a clinical psychologist in Vancouver. She's the author of iMinds, How Cell Phones, Computers, Gaming, and Social Media Are Changing Our Brains, Our Behavior, and the Evolution of Our Species. Dr. Swingle, thank you very much for taking the time, and I had no idea what I was talking about there. Well, first, it's my pleasure, and let's see if we can make sense of things. Well, let's see, because it's it really is fascinating, and, and um, in... In your the release about what you do, talk about millions of kids missing school, millions of parents not going to work, and some adults actually set, tossing aside their careers in order to get involved in the Pokemon Go craze. We have addiction concerns in our modern society. Um, millions, perhaps billions of people are addicted to their computers, to their smartphones, and to the Internet. How has this already changed us? And just going with your book title, how's it going to change us going forward? Where to start? Where to start? Um, everywhere. Um, the, the, the issue with screens and uh, the way uh, gaming devices um, and just the nature of the way screens work, uh, they mesmerize us. They draw us in. Um, and, 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 you know, um, gaming industry got on this rather quickly. You know, games are designed to keep us in cycles of one to two years. I mean, that, that's their intention. But uh, Pokemon was a bit different. It was the, I, I call it the perfect marriage or the perfect storm uh, because it was a nostalgic revival of a card game that um, people used to play when they were kids. Um, and, and then the, um, the screen-based uh, uh, function on it. So, I mean, it's... We really, really understand the mass appeal. Um, and if we just take it from a fun perspective, nothing wrong with it. Go out and have fun. But as you alluded to, this whole addictive component, if we play with these games too much, that's where we start to alter um, our personalities, um, our behaviors. And, and, again, I could chew your ear off on any of this if you want to guide me in a 
specific direction. Well, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed is increasingly, and if I go back 20 years, people were still using phone booths. You know, you want to make a phone call, you go to a phone booth. What are those? Right. <laughs> 20 years ago, people were using phone booths. I'm what, using you, yeah. yeah, what's a phone booth? <laughs> yeah. What's and 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 uh, and reading newspapers yeah. more than they more than they do now. Now yeah. everyone everyone appears to have from the smallest person to the to the oldest person mm-hmm. has a mobile phone which has yeah. more power, more computer power than the Apollo 11 spacecraft that guided Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Collins to the moon. Yes, some pretty interesting facts. And again, if we use this all as the tools they're developed to be, I'm, I'm very pro-technology. Uh, pro the problem is it's an override. Um, you know, the, the, the instant uh, connectivity or the instant availability that our cell phones and our, you know, our laptops gave us, I think, are fantastic. Um, but, you know, I, I, I say very dominantly in the book that, you know, the, the positive has turned into the curse meaning we don't seem to be able to turn them off and disconnect. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the problem is. Yeah, People, um, so I, pe- people get up at 3 o'clock in the morning not to go to the bathroom anymore, yeah, yeah. but to check their email and their Twitter accounts. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It, it, it's an addictive pull. Um, and this has been very, um, this is how I got into it in terms of my own research. There are very, very specific profiles uh, of addiction. I think this is, this is the addiction of the 21st century, period. But I always go to the other side. If you use them as tools, they're fabulous. You just have to uh, literally now train yourself uh, to turn your devices off and to leave them at home sometimes. And whoever thought that we would have to train ourselves away from something. (laughs) I have been in my car, Dr. Swingle, and I've been three miles from my house. Oh, my God, I haven't got my phone. Yeah. <laughs> and did you panic? <laughs> I did. Yeah. And I pulled an illegal U-turn to go and get my phone. Yeah. Because my world might collapse without my phone. Then the one one time I did that just last week, I then decided I would record to see what happened with my phone, whether there was anything of any significance that happened in the time that I was out with the phone. And I, I use my phone for business. I use it for this program. I use it for all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not a thing. Nothing. Zero. But I could not break the addiction cycle. So Mm -hmm. what are we doing now? Let's bring this back to Pokemon Go. We've got how many do we does anybody have any idea how many people are engaged, involved? Uh, the numbers change daily, um, but uh, again, one of the things to watch is whether this has a natural cycle, meaning that people kind of go crazy about it and then it kind of wanes. Um, the other thing to watch is whether this is going to be the new direction of gaming or whether, as I said, Pokemon just hit it because of the nostalgia. Oh, you, you and I both know what's going to happen. There's going to be son of and son of son of <laughs> because there's money, yeah. there's money to be made. Well, McDonald's is on it now. They're now paying to have uh, Pokestops. So, yeah, the, uh, the mass marketing of this is really, it's running. Um, but, again, my, my concerns are not about the games or, or playing the games a little bit to have fun like anything else. Right. Get balance in your life. Right. But I think everybody has to um, almost literally wake up and open your eyes in terms of the other effects. So ask yourself, what is this game doing? 
uh, or your device doing when you're walking into traffic because of it, when you're tripping over cinder blocks, when you're, you know, trying to catch these things off of, you know, otherwise occupied um, coffins. You know, so that's where we have to kind of sit back and go, whoa, wait a minute, this is beyond fun. This is changing our brains. This is what we should be doing. Yes. But it's not what we are doing. I think we're becoming deeper and more involved and more engaged with yes. the phones as they offer more options. But you mean, I, can, I can go out and I can buy a new mobile phone. In fact, my carrier informed me that there's, I can go out and get the, the latest Android. I can go get the latest Samsung phone. The best of 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 the newest of the best of the best. And I'll get 300 bucks off. Plus, they'll give me 200 bucks trade-in on the phone that I have now, which is only a year and a half old. So why wouldn't I do that? Because I'd have all this newest stuff. And, you know, the, uh, the, the, the technology addict in me said, go get it. Go get it. It was, go get it. Uh, the, the more reasonable voice in my brain said, what you've got is working fine. Stay home. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the, the you know we've had the the keeping up with the Joneses in, in terms of technology has has fallen off the cliff. Right. Um, and again, what adults choose to do with their own funds is, is one thing. But I'm very very concerned about the children, um, and that the fact that parents are buying in and children feel socially isolated, or um, you know impoverished if they don't have the latest and the greatest and the most expensive devices. And if you kind of go back, you know why should a nine year old or a thirteen year old have an iPhone 6, you know, what, what's the first car that you, you help your child buy if you're wealthy enough to, to assist them? You don't buy them a Porsche, you know, you buy them some nice little Honda clunker, you know. Exactly, so, for a thousand bucks. Yeah, yeah. So again, the, the, these are the larger questions that we have to start asking ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, why it, it, it's, one is the mesmerization of the technology and the screens, and the other, there are larger social concerns. And to, to you know, pull back a little bit into um, my book, that's one of the things I talk about. Yes, it's a, uh, a, a, I believe it's a balanced critique of technology, but it puts it in a social context. You know, all of our issues with technology did not come about in isolation. We're, we're living in a current time now where, uh, you know, th th there was a, uh, you know, a blank spot um, and, and uh, you know, there was a gap and, and media, our iMedia or screen-based devices just filled it. Well, I, I just find it absolutely fascinating what you're doing and, and, and I want you to uh, just stay with us, please. I, uh, I want to talk some more about this. I want to talk about the kids and the, the impact that it's having on children. Dr. Marie Swingle and her, she's a neurotherapist, clinical psychologist in Vancouver. The book is iMinds, How Cell Phones, Computers, Gaming, and Social Media Are Changing Our Brains, Our Behavior, and the Evolution of Our Species. Now think about that. Think about that. How? Think about this. iMinds, iMinds, right? That's all of us. Yeah. Um, that's all sort of the iPhones. We've become extensions of our phones. That's what we are. We're human extensions of our phones. How cell phones, computers, gaming, and social media are changing our brains, our behavior, our the evolution of our species. It is changing everything. You've got little kids. Never mind little kids. You've got adults texting each other across the table. This, this is going on. You know it's maybe happening in your house. You're in the same room. Why don't you talk to each other? Well, because I, I have to use my phone. If I don't use my phone, something terrible is going to happen to me. That is changing you, folks. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
What needs to be said? We have about three minutes. What needs to be said? Let me go back. Let me again mention the the title of your book because it speaks to, to, to what's happening. iMinds, how cell phones, computers, gaming, and social media are changing our brains, our behavior, and the evolution of our species. What needs to be said and heard? Well, let me just throw out something in terms of specific for Pokemon, in in terms of what's happening in in media and how we spin the positives. Um, I always want us to be um, balanced, positives and the negatives, so that the the latest is how, you know, the kids are getting off the couch and outside and how this is really good for geolocation um, and learning about our environment. But there's some really interesting stuff coming out. I believe it's out of the University of Waterloo. And they're mapping the brain, and they're looking at what areas of the brain we're using while we're on these uh, augmented reality games. And we're not using the region of the brain that helps us uh, with uh, self-location or our own mapping. We're using the area of the brain that's triggered by search and destroy games. So you don't have to be a scientist to figure out that if you're the area of your brain that's being trained, the way we train military to go and kill people, that's the area of the brain that's being trained when you're playing Pokemon. Now, if you go out and you play for a couple of hours here and there, by all means, have fun. Okay, but if you're doing this four hours a day after work or school for extended periods of time, that's what I'm talking about in terms of changing your brain and behavior and, yes, our evolution because, of course, the social components, um, well, again, we don't have to get into the deep science. Um, Anybody with a grain of social intelligence can figure out that if you're training that area of the brain, you're going to be less social. Yeah. You know, this this goes back almost to, well, it goes back to the beginning of gaming. Mm-hmm. Where where there was great outrage over the fact that certain games had violent components, like you ripped the spine out of an opponent and then you scored yeah. bonus points, and yeah. and then the question was asked, well, what good will that do to the development of a sound mind and 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 psycho- psychological makeup of a child? None, zero. Not a whole lot, <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, there's there's a lot of uh, counter uh, media play in the in the industry that I get very very upset at in terms of uh, promoting things. Right. Um, now we, we you know we all let's let's talk truth here. We all kind of like a little blood and guts, you know, whether it's the horror films or you know screaming down roller coasters. That you know those areas we like those thrills. And I have thirty but, seconds. Okay, but just watch the age. You don't want to be doing this with young kids, and if you're older, not too much, because you like it too much and you'll get sucked in. It is really, really fascinating. It's very, very important, and it's extremely relevant. Uh, iMinds, how cell phones, computers, gaming, and social media are changing our brains, our behavior, and the evolution of our species. Dr. Mary Swingle, that's M-A-R-I-S-W-I-N-G-L-E neurotherapist, clinical psychologist in Vancouver. I hope you'll come back, Dr. Swingle. My pleasure. Sure thing. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, again, thank you. Bye-bye.